Have you ever thought of a rare bookshop? Ethel Fegan, librarian of the Chetelham Ladies College, asked Emily Millicent Sowerby in 1908. Sowerby, born in 1883, fascinated by Incanabula, that is, books printed before 1500, would have answered truthfully, yes. But the strictures of pre-World War I Europe would give an educated woman like her, who went to Girton College at Cambridge, pause. This meeting led to her cataloging books for Polish revolutionary-turned-antiquarian bookseller Michael Voynich, though, as World War I loomed, she was let go, but not before the firm, of Sotheby, Wilkinson, and Hodge, desperately in need of book catalogers, hired her. She worked through the war, 1916 to 1923, with an interlude in counterintelligence in Paris. In her memoir, Rare People and Rare Books, she relates her isolation as the only female working in the industry with all of the sexist bullshit that you would expect, including policing her dress so that men wouldn't be distracted by elegant females and quibbling over her lunch breaks. Next, she'd get a job at the New York Public Library, then as a bibliographer for ASW Rosenbach's until she was appointed the bibliographer of the Jefferson Collection at the Library of Congress in July of 1942. The online history of her work, the catalog of the Library of Thomas Jefferson, was, quote, to be completed and printed in time for the bicentennial or 200th anniversary of Jefferson's birth in April 1943. What was intended to be completed in nine months took 17 years to complete, end quote. In five volumes, from 1952 to 1959, the biobibliography describes and annotates the entire collection that Thomas Jefferson left to the Library of Congress. In her obituary in the New York Times, quote, The Library of Congress, which had bought Jefferson's collection of more than 6,500 volumes in 1815, but lost almost two-thirds of them in a fire in 1851 and scattered others in its general collection, engaged her to trace and reconstruct the list. The work won acclaim for shedding new light on aspects of Jefferson's life beyond the achievement in bibliography, end quote. She died in 1977. She explained, quote, It had been hoped, when this undertaking was started, to compile a definitive catalog of the library sold to Congress in 1815 by Jefferson, fully annotated by himself and his correspondence. This has proved to be impossible, end quote. Despite its flaws and the internet able to fill in the gaps that the 1950s couldn't quickly close, it's still a monumental work for one of the country's most famous bibliophiles. As Donald Jackson writes, quote, His collection of works on American geography and exploration occupies 197 pages in Millicent Sowerby's annotated catalog. End quote. Welcome to Expeditions, the podcast around Lewis and Clark where we look at the history and historiography one day at a time. We are at Expeditions Pod everywhere. Social media, Patreon if you want to support the show, as well as our website. You are in Mile Marker 3, Episode Jefferson 2, Geographies. Thomas Jefferson was born into speculation on Western lands. His father, Peter, along with John Lewis, Thomas Walker, Joshua Fry, James Murray, as well as a slew of Merriweathers, including Thomas Merriweather, our Merriweather Lewis's grandfather, started speculating on Western lands under the Loyal Land Company. They had jurisdiction toward Western waters, which basically meant, for us, the Ohio. Though, as we know, 
the Western Sea and the Northwest Passage were but a bend in the valley away. Unlike future schemes that we're going to see in our story, the Loyal Company required only surveys to hold the land, no matter how hazy some of those were, instead of settlers. Fry and Peter Jefferson's map would be published by Thomas Jeffries as the map of the most inhabited parts of Virginia, and Jefferson would also be influenced by his natural and civil history of the French dominions in America. Thus, it was a young Thomas Jefferson watching Thomas Walker be drafted on an expedition to the Missouri River, which only got nixed due to the French and Indian War outbreak. He would write glowingly about the imagined Missouri in his only published book, Notes on the State of Virginia, which we'll explore further. Quote, the Missouri is in fact a principal river, contributing more the common stream than does the Mississippi, even after its junction with the Illinois. End quote. After his father died, Thomas Walker became the children's financial guardian, while James Murray continued young Thomas's education, who instilled him with many of the skills that would make him conversant with the naturalists and explorers that he would meet and correspond with in the years to come. From the myriad of books, he would learn and adapt ideas and theories that would come to influence the Lewis and Clark expedition. For a more in-depth view, see Donald Jackson's fantastic chapter, The Geographer's Bookshelf, and Thomas Jefferson in the Stony Mountains, on which this episode is severely based on. As we covered in our last mile marker, the history of exploration is long and cannot be done justice in a 15-minute podcast episodes, but Trying as we might, we can at least delineate the difference between geographies in good faith and those in bad faith. The bad faith are bad for various reasons, but essentially they're fabrications. And fabrications have consequences when other people and nations head out to go look for them. It's not to say that Europeans wouldn't have done so eventually, but the reasons for trips, like to the Pacific Northwest, as we've seen, can get wrapped up in imperial intrigue to devastating consequences for those who are already there. Early explorers such as Juan de Fuca, Maldonado, Anthony Linton, to those closer to Jefferson's time, Hennepin, Lawiton, Carver, explorers and cartographers all used their claims of legitimacy to stake parts of the world for their respective bosses. And it wasn't just across the globe from coastal Europe. It happened in the valleys of North America, the river systems that would be proposed out of whole cloth and then fought over, first by colonies and then by states. These accounts, Brandon Rinsing writes, quote, reveal an anxious mindset among European nations, private investors, and explorers, end quote. One theory that was more wishful thinking than anything was the idea of symmetrical geography. Daniel Cox, an influence on the members of the Loyal Company, in his 1741 book, A Description of the English Province of Carolina, by the Spaniards called Florida, and by the French La Louisiana, posits that the unknown western rivers would behave like those in the east, and more importantly, would rise from mountains that were the size of the Appalachians. As Donald Jackson notes, quote, Jefferson's old mentor, James Murray, was using the concept when he pointed out how far the castor branches of the Mississippi extended eastward, and how near they come to the Potomac, and other rivers which entered the Atlantic. It could be expected then that the western branches of the Mississippi would approach other rivers that emptied into the Pacific." End quote. 
As no European had penetrated the source of the Mississippi, or a counterpart headed to the Pacific, symmetrical geography was purely wishful thinking and came from the Enlightenment idea of balance in nature. As Brandon Rensink explains, quote, Jefferson imagined a water route that connected the two coasts of an enormous empire, which would make possible the transportation of trade goods and furs in both directions. End quote. This imagination didn't come out of nowhere. The French Jesuit explorer Pierre-Francois Xavier de Charlevoix took symmetrical geography and added a bit of nuance. He reported on what he and other French travelers believed, that the Missouri originated in a mountain range, good so far, and that another river flowed westward from the same range. Oops, at least in a navigational sense. Thus, symmetry wasn't that important. It was the desire of the length of one's portage between the Missouri and whichever river or rivers as the idea expanded that took precedence, to say nothing of the potential of a short portage with horrifying geography, which is what Lewis and Clark would conclude as the Snake River was close, but it was not navigable. But without seeing any of this, Charlie Vu's height of land theory was just that, a theory that the Missouri and the Mississippi and, fingers crossed, the Western River to the Pacific all rose near the same elevation in the Rockies. The issue, as James Holmberg writes, was, quote, that geographers did not know where its headwaters lay, and they projected them being due east at about the same longitude as the Missouri was believed to begin, end quote. Technically, the elevation was unknown, but with these what-ifs, anything is possible. And Mackenzie's 1801 map, marking height of land at his own portage, did not help things. Lewis and Clark misjudged the Rockies up to their setting foot in them, though they would use the extensive surveys that were done on the Pacific coast, such as those done in Nootka Sound, to debunk any notion of a pyramidical and or also symmetrical height of land. Similar to the elevation of the rivers, Baron de la Hontan, a deserter in the French military, published his voyages in 1705 that, quote, developed the idea of the Riviere Longue, or Long River, rising in the range of mountains and flowing eastward into the Mississippi, end quote. However, as Donald Jackson writes, the book, quote, contained a few geographical truths, distorted but close to reality, though the French in America quickly discredited it but it retained a certain vogue in Europe and England, end quote. But as we've seen, a good idea, in this case moving the Western Sea closer to where you happen to be, dies hard, especially once you add it onto a map. Guillaume d'Isle, the half-brother of the French astronomer Louis d'Isle de la Croyer, who La Perouse and his crew had visited when they wintered in Kamchatka, added Lawatan's Long River to his map of Canada, and it effectively stuck around until the end of the century. Antoine Simon Lepage de Prats, whose history of Louisiana published in multiple volumes in the early 1750s, took this idea and crafted, I won't say invented, a character, Moncachapé, who traversed North America a century before Mackenzie and Lewis and Clark. What's interesting is that Duprat's avoids common geographic traps that are the hallmarks of a good fabrication. His La Belle Riviere, beautiful river, not to be confused with the Ohio, very much resembles the Columbia, as Moncachapé traveled like Lewis and Clark to the headwaters of the Missouri and over the Rockies. As we'll talk more about Moncachapé later, 
it's worth remembering that native peoples have crisscrossed the continent from time immemorial and have very much had a solid grasp on their surroundings, though their way of seeing the world differ greatly from the explorers that they would meet, and lost in translation, Europeans created whatever they saw fit. As Duprat's books were published and translated, the beautiful river would take on the name of Oregon. The rumors of such a river were first described by Robert Rogers of the Rogers Rangers fame during the French and Indian War, but its incorporation into Jonathan Carver's 1778 blockbuster travels through the interior parts of North America that gripped the imagination of Easterners like Thomas Jefferson, who owned the book. Part of the allure, going back to the Strait of Anian, was where this river terminated. The Western Sea is a phrase used over and over and didn't always mean the Pacific Ocean as we know it. Of course, this is where one gets lost in translation. Lahontan and Escalante, a century apart, heard of the Great Salt Lake. And according to Larry Morris, the lake, called Pearl Shell Lake, was mentioned without coordinates on an 1802 government map. And before it was discovered, quote unquote, by mountain man Jim Bridger in 1825, this sea continued to allow the possibility that the Columbia River wasn't the Oregon River that had been prophesized. That dream would take some time after Lewis and Clark to fully die. What completely pulled Jefferson and others like him in wasn't just the scientific method of it all, going out to confirm or deny the geographic theories and entire river systems, but the narrative of it all. So much work has been done in Lewis and Clark historiography to place their journals in the context of the Age of Discovery and the narratives that they would have been familiar with, especially Cook, Vancouver, and Mackenzie. Those narratives were built on the backs of others that Jefferson was acquainted with, William Bartrand's travels through North and South Carolina, Georgia, East and West Florida from 1791. Thomas Hutchins, who will meet laters, a topographical description of Virginia, Pennsylvania, Maryland, and North Carolina from 1778. And Mark Catesby's A Natural History of Carolina, Florida, and the Bahama Islands in 1771. He also sold as part of his 1815 sale a copy of John Ledyard's A Journal of Captain Cook's Last Voyage to the Pacific Ocean and In Quest of a Northwest Passage Through Asia and America, Hartford, 1783, Sowerby, number 3940, along with a copy of Samuel's Narrative of Captain Cook, among others. These narratives, which Meriwether Lewis surely had access to, if they weren't already given to him as a part of a reading list when he served as Jefferson's personal secretary, would provide a template for how one should act and accord themselves into the unknown while advancing the broad strokes of the Enlightenment. Thus, a major aspect of exploration literature was the synthesizing of what was known and what you, the newest explorer in the field, can confirm or deny. As we'll see, the illusions that Lewis and Clark make in their journals, overt and covert, riff off of the generations of formalized material learning, that is, maps, charts, and journals, as well as many more generations of indigenous knowledge. I cannot live without books, Thomas Jefferson wrote John Adams in 1815, just as he was offered, quote, the means of re-procuring some parts of the literary treasures which I have ceded to Congress to replace the devastations of British vandalism at Washington." End quote. 
referring to the British setting the town ablaze in 1814. While a life without books never suited Jefferson, and he would start another library after donating his to the Library of Congress, quote, fewer will suffice where amusement and not use is the only future object, end quote. By then, the Jeffersonian man had made his mark on the Missouri, on the Mississippi, and on the Arkansas and the Red. The realities and reports, discourses, maps, and royal funding and approbation of expeditions that Rinsing saw through his survey of the literature, which often amounted to nothing more than idyllic hopes, dreams, and conjectures, had, by the dawning of the 19th century, started to give way as the white spaces on maps would be meticulously filled in. Mm-hmm.